Hi, I'm Phoebe Lovett and this is Deep Read, a podcast where I speak to big thinkers about big ideas. Every episode of the series is accompanied by a further reading list, which you can find at public-library.online. And if you enjoy the episode, I'd really appreciate if you could like, subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. Thank you for listening. My guest today is the author and journalist Oliver Berkman. I first interviewed Oliver back in 2019 when he was writing This Column Will Change Your Life for The Guardian, an ironically titled weekly investigation into popular and lesser known routes to mental well-being. Since then, he has become the best-selling author of 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, which is a thoughtful and thought-provoking challenge to our futile modern obsession with getting everything done. I found the book's core message, to embrace your limits, accept mortality, and give up on the belief that you will ever complete your to-do list, to be a much-needed antidote to the productivity gospel that has dominated our culture for all too long. I've always enjoyed the way that Oliver draws on a broad spectrum of ideas spanning everything from ancient philosophy to new age spirituality to offer genuinely fresh perspectives on modern life. I enjoyed speaking to him again for this podcast and I hope you enjoy it too. So good afternoon Oliver, thank you for joining me in this uh, bizarre online (laughs) podcast recording studio. Thanks for inviting me. Whereabouts in the world are you today, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, no, not at all. I'm in the North York Moors, where we uh, where we live these days, uh, having relocated from Brooklyn, New York, uh, about a year and a half ago now. So you can't see, but I'm looking out over a really a view that continues to slightly astonish me. Really, you're, you're just the part. You've got the Patagonia yeah, gear on. My, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Even yep. though I've I failed to shave for several days, it's all <laughs> there's very, no. Uh, there's no visual context for your setting, but your but your outfit tells me everything I need to know about yeah. your lifestyle. <laughs> you might hear like a pheasant in the background or something, nice. celebrating the end of uh, recreational shooting season. Oh wow! Okay, a whole, a whole new world. <laughs> because the last time we spoke, and thank you again for making time to speak to me, I appreciate it a lot. Um, we were in a, a very small, cramped uh, little cupboard. <laughs> pretty much in um in Brooklyn where yeah. we were both living at the time and I think it was it was the building that you were working in where you had it your was the co-working in. space I think yeah that's right feels uh, like a very life. feels like a lifetime ago for me I'm sure it does for you also yeah it's funny how that goes doesn't it it's like you sort of you switch where you're living or you move and then it, it gets sort of categorized into some distant past but not really that distant when you think clearly about it but yeah well I suppose I mean well I was reading back the transcript of that conversation actually um it was it was a nice conversation thank you again for for having it with me I I was interesting even to read it back but I think you mentioned in the course of the conversation that you were working on a new book and I assume it's the one that um I'd like to talk to you about today which is 4,000 weeks time and how to use it or time management for mortals depending on which part of the world you're in is that correct Oh, yeah, it's all been unified now that the hardback okay. in Britain had that time and how to use it okay. subtitle and everything else was time management for mortals. And now everything is time management for mortals. I see. In the US and the UK and other English language. Am it's, I correct? In... There's far more information right there than you or anyone needs to know about. <laughs> no, I mean, I was quite intrigued by it, actually, because I, I assumed it was something like sort of catching the attention of the US market versus the 
British market, but maybe I've overthought it. Well, that stuff goes on, right? I mean, you know, they the the jacket designs look completely different. I love yeah. I, the US and the UK ones. I I love both, but um, but they couldn't be much more different. Um, the the US one has a sense of, I think it has a sense of being like more like this book can help you accomplish things, and the UK one is more like this book can help you relax and chill out so i feel like i mean it's a subtle but very telling distinction isn't it yeah but so am i um yeah no just just how it's sold which also says a lot um am i correct in thinking you just start you'd started working on it at that time yeah i was working on it for ages so i don't actually recall which if you know what year it was that we spoke it was um, was either 2017 or early 2018 right so yeah i was working on it although what happened was um uh our son was born months really after I initially sold the book proposal and yeah. in 2017 I was still basically getting by on doing the minimum work I could both on the book and journalism while right. really focused on you know uh the baby um so it was more after that that I sort of um buckled down and wrote the vast majority of the of the book yeah and it's been extremely successful. So congr- congratulations. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, certainly by my standards. I'm totally, totally astonished at how many people it seems to resonate with. I mean, without being sort of like too reductive, do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think it, it's sort of hit a nerve? Because I feel like it really has. It's, it's one of those books that's come along. You can feel it's come along exactly the right time. People want to read a book like this, but I don't, I don't know if you have any thoughts on why, why that is. I mean, you know, it's totally, it's totally self-selecting, isn't it? Because I get lots of lovely emails from people for whom it's made a big difference. I'm not going to get emails from people who, who didn't make a difference for. Um, uh, but um, I, I think, uh, I, I guess, I guess if I if I got something right there, I suppose it's the it's the it's the focusing of a completely timeless, universal issue that's mm. always been with us and always will be in some sense through a a specific lens of what that feels like in the this period of modernity right the specific mm. qualities of being overwhelmed and impatient and anxious about the future all sort of coming together in a specific way that we can talk about if you want and then the bit that I didn't do I mean it was total chance I think the timing relative to the pandemic was was very fortuitous from my point of view because it came out as the as it began to be legitimate to say that we were emerging from from that slowly mm. and um that sense that like you know everything had been thrown up in the air that it was time to make big decisions that it was time to you know the we're led to understand that the pandemic caused many many people to decide to leave their unfulfilling jobs mm. for example in search of new things and I've definitely heard that in a few people's cases, they say reading my book caused them to leave their jobs. So I, I, um, a compliment. I that, that kind of moment where there's a demand for ways to hang on to certain insights that were acquired during yeah. that range period. I sure. Guess. Yeah. I definitely have some questions for you about the pandemic and sort of like the, the shift in sort of values, priorities, um relationship with time and work etc but I just wanted to rewind a little bit because again when we spoke in 2017 2018 
think you I don't I think you were maybe still writing your column for the Guardian um this column will change your life for anyone who's unfamiliar um where you sort of like well my my read on it was that you you know sort of interrogated the canons of self-help and and pulled out extracted ideas that you thought were, were actually valid and and maybe or just investigated them rather would you, would you say that's an accurate read on what that column was about yeah I think so I mean it changed what it was about because I did it for years like what was it like I think it was 12 years I did yeah. it in the end which is which is nuts I I still don't feel old enough to be doing any one thing for 12 years um uh but you know so it changed and one of the things that it changed was that it sort of in a way I think I became more more sincere about it because I think it right in the early days it was sort of almost satirical in its intent to just sort of pull apart all the ridiculousness mm. in that uh publishing sector but it um it's actually much more fun when you're writing for an audience of guardian readers it turns out to mm. um to sort of provoke them a bit with the thought that there could be some things that are valid mm-hmm. <laughs> in, that, in that world that's actually a more interesting and you know slightly contrarian thing to be to be doing um and then you know by the end of it it was sufficiently sort of established that I could really just pretty much write about anything that interested me within a fairly broad parameters of mm. subject matter so I was really lucky it was it was uh it was a sort of testing ground for all sorts of stuff that went into well both the books yeah yeah I mean I was gonna ask sort of you know of all the things that you wrote about um I I guess in some respects writing that column must have been like a a massive research project for you (laughs) in terms of what might what what you what might be sufficiently engaging for you to explore in a book what what received you know, you can tell how interested people are in the ideas because of their the popularity on the Guardian homepage, etc. The comments, quite a good yes. testing ground for, for what, why was it that um, time was as big a topic as it is sort of like where you decided to delve in? I mean, it was a testing ground and it did come from that, but, but there's, and, and one of those is just like very, uh, as you say, very straightforwardly, it's sort of a kind of market research, but there are a couple of other things. I mean, one is this effect of testing out all sorts of different time management approaches week after mm-hmm. week, which is not the only thing I did in that column, but came up fairly often. It's quite useful in a sort of unexpected way because you because they all kind of fail to bring the the sort of sense of total peace and calm and control that you're or that I was pursuing them mm. for, um, at least when I really used them, you know, properly in my in my wider life outside of the research for work. Um, so that's really useful actually to sort of really exhaust something <laughs> like that is actually le- leaves you seeing something new about, about what your secret agendas and ulterior motives are. And that definitely went into the book. The other thing I only kind of realized this in the last year since the book has been out, but I think the way I come up with ideas for, well books but also just any sort of longer thing that I'm doing is it it, it, it's really always retrospective so it's like it's not like oh what would be a good idea for a book it's it's like what's the connecting what's the through line with all these things that I've already been writing about what's the like what's the um, umbrella topic that all this interesting stuff connects to Um, so the idea is already there you just need to sort of 
find it. And so the really huge benefit of getting to work on a short column every week for years is that it sort of obliges you to engage with all those little ideas, mm. not to wait perfectionistically uh, till you've got a really good one. Yeah. And then you get to see, oh, right, okay, yeah, all these things are kind of, it's time, isn't it? This is the this is the unifying thing. Um, but then again, it's like, it is time, but then I don't think anything, I don't think time management, if you understand it broadly enough, is a topic that excludes any aspect of human life at all. So um, it's a little bit of a cheat as well, because I think it's just really, I feel like, you know, you could have given this book a far less appealing title, just like, my current philosophy of life as i understand it you know it's um, yeah it, but it's but time is a good is a good lens for that because it's it is the sort of focus of so many of our feelings of sort of struggle and being mm. at war in our lives with yeah yeah and as i read the book it's also essentially time is sort of a, a, this concept of time is a standing for the concept of more, mortality basically and like our collective inability in the west to like really grapple with our i mean the opening chapter of your book is or the introduction rather is in the long run we're all dead <laughs> so i mean again correct me if i'm wrong but that was kind of how i read it. it's like we need to embrace this idea of um finitude as as you describe it sort of like the idea that life is short we're not going to be able to do everything we want and and really the only error that we make is i suppose not even an error because I, I think it's an indoctrination in a sense that we're, we've been conditioned to aspire to like endless growth, expansion, more, 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 more as a byproduct of living under capitalism. <laughs> that again, that's my read. I don't know if you'd say that's accurate. And, and this book to me is like, it's, um, you know, it's a very like well-worded, gentle, informative way of reminding people you're going to die. <laughs> And this is something you need to face to actually use your days well and, and not well as in quote unquote productively, but as in, you know, presence. And then that beautiful chapter, um, uh, sorry, passage towards the end where you talk about how it's just as valuable to sort of make your children meals and, and things like that, which is one of my favorite chaps, uh, passages in the book. I won't read it all out, but, um, you know, it well, and people who are listening should just buy the book and read it. But, um, yeah, I just wondered if, if that was sort of something you could expand on a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I guess the focus that really crystallized for me writing the book is it's not, it's not a like, it's not a book about death or dying. And no. I don't know that I would be uh, able to write such a book, but it is about this sort of one key ramification of the fact that we, that we die, which is, which is the finiteness of our time and our ability to control time. Mm. And I just wanted to, I think, yeah. I th so I think it, it, it's, um, you know, not to uh, let's, let, maybe we can have this conversation without going into the work of Martin Heidegger, because it just drives, <laughs> sort of one, it drives one kind of crazy, but, but this notion that we, that we live in this situation that is sort of governed by the fact that our time will end. And that we don't even have the power to know when, let alone mm. to, uh, you know, choose otherwise. But that an awful lot of our lives are spent trying to find ways to kind of psychologically um, 
insulate ourselves from having to sort of feel what that's that's like so i suppose one of the ways you can see the whole book is as an argument for all the ways in which we that that all the ways we go wrong in time with with time uh psychologically speaking are sort of come from this kind of avoidance this this refusal to feel what it's really like and what it really means to be finite and it isn't that if you face up to all that your life will become completely serene and wonderful i mean it might be at an extreme i have i certainly haven't got there but just that it's ultimately more meaningful and authentic to live mm. in the kind of anxiety that comes from knowing your time is finite than in the kind of anxiety that comes from constantly trying to convince yourself that your time isn't finite mm -hmm. basically. and then you can tr control it and get on top of it as you say if you just find the right system which you know by trial and error you you figured out was not not happening after 12 years of trying to to get on top of it and you know of course a lot of the book references your experience with um you know the kind of concept of like trying to clear the deck which has been really mm -hmm. useful to me just like reminding myself that there's always going to be another thing to do so it doesn't matter if I finish all the things I need to do today because there'll be more things to do tomorrow and then it it, it just never ends I wonder like how like how is your, I mean, you talk, um, it's kind of obviously partly philosophical, part, there's, but there's a lot of practical advice in there, little sort of mindset shifts and habits and stuff that you can um, apply to get out of, of that idea that you can get on top of things. How has your like day-to-day -day changed in sort of both through writing the book and in the time that's passed since it's been published? Um, that's a great question. I... I mean, I think it has changed a lot as a result of the sort of journey that I had to go on to finish the book to sort of, because it's funny how this works. I, I think it's probably quite a common experience um, with book writing, but it's like I had the idea in sufficiently fine, you know, sufficiently final form to sell a book proposal. So it was there, it was coherent. Um, my sort of overall conclusion didn't change massively. Um over the course of writing it but they got so much more sort of deep and profound in terms of my experience of them in ways that I could never have foretold most obviously the ways in which becoming a parent um sort of brought a lot of this stuff home to me so it's really odd it's like there's some part of your brain that can see the journey you need to go on enough to write a book proposal as if you're the guy who knows all about this thing, but you don't. And yeah. then you go on the journey to actually write the book in it and it, and you have to sort of actually change your personality a bit in order to finish it in a honest and authentic way. So I am, you know, I, I, I doubt I'll ever be a completely non-anxious person, but I think I'm a way less of an anxious person. I think I'm, I think that I am much more capable of finding, uh, pleasure or even or, or even just sort of absorption in the things that I'm doing instead of with that constant mindset of living exclusively for the for the future it's a kind of disillusionment in a way right it's a kind of sort of positive disillusionment where um whether it's as a result of writing the book or just getting a bit older who knows but like that that the notion that the moment of truth is coming later gets harder and harder to believe in and the harder it is to believe in it if you're lucky or you know a little bit of what you're doing the more you can sort of find it right here because it has to be found um right here so that's definitely changed 
the curious thing about on a more sort of day-to-day level it's been weird having the book sort of excuse me it's been weird having the book strike a chord with so many people because I've written and it's not the only subject in the book but you know I talk at some length about dealing with uh large incoming streams of emails and demands on your time and things like that and opportunities that you have to choose between and all the rest of it and then the book has actually led to my having more of those than I have any previous experience of by a very long way so volumes of email things I could do that would be interesting and fulfilling and rewarding if I had the time but I'm only going to have time for some of them um all of that stuff so some so on a bad day I'll be like hang on I've written about how to handle email overload and I feel completely overloaded uh, and overwhelmed by email today like am I a total fraud and a hypocrite on the other hand I think this is a universal thing with sort of any kind of psychological growth or change in a positive direction which is that you sort of you keep on moving up to your edge right so you keep on taking on uh new challenges because you now have the capacity to take them on but then that Mm. brings you to a new edge where it's like quite a struggle so Mm. it's certainly not the case that um struggling with time related issues has uh, gone away for me but I think they've sort of you've just gone to a whole new level graduated in an interesting way right there's this great quote from I think it's attributed to Rilke it might be mistranslated and all sorts of things but which is that the purpose of life is to be defeated by greater and greater things right and yeah, uh, I've definitely one. gone like one, just one notch along the scale of things that I can be defeated by. Yeah. I mean, I suppose as a writer, it's not intuitive to you to have a team, although perhaps you do have one. So forgive me if I'm um, insinuating something that doesn't reflect your reality. But for me, it's always like, even though I do a lot of different things, I sort of started out as a, you know, freelance journalist. So when I get overwhelmed, people, other people around me remind me, uh, most people who have a lot to do have other people helping them to do <laughs> Yeah, you know. Whereas I yeah. think you're used to sitting in a room on your own. The idea yeah. that you have a team yeah. of some kind is takes a while to come around to. Yeah, I'm going through that transformation in certain ways right now, and it's I do find it sort of agonizingly difficult yeah. to yeah. move to that that place. But it's but it's happening, and it clearly. I hear I hear it really helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other concepts that I really enjoyed, um, or sort of found very thought-provoking in the book um it probably because it sort of relates a little bit to my life or at least the way I used to live it a bit more probably around the time that I first met you was um like this idea of temporal sovereignty and and the idea that it might be aspirational to have complete control of your time but actually it's quite a misguided idea of what time is for and how it's most fruitfully enjoyed and it reminded me I read a, a quiff a, a quiff a quote from Zadie Smith um a little while ago where she sort of talked about how she sort of said like you know in New York that she says you can settle your life how you want it like lunch here and dinner there and if someone gets in your way for a second you're ready to bite your head off bite their head off but life should involve things you don't want to do complication on, and uncomfortable things and then back in when she's back in London, she's got, you know, her family vying for attention and, and whatnot. And she said, like, you know, without it, what are you? Just some international global writer thing. There's nothing there. And I thought that that really was like captured what you were talking about in that because you talk about digital nomad culture, yeah. which for a long time was sort of and maybe it's changing now, but it's sort of like 
positives is like the ultimate aspiration for like the technology of our era, you know, what it can offer you. This idea you can just bounce around from a beach in Bali to, you know, whatever with your laptop and that being sort of like a goal. Can you just, can you talk a little bit more about that idea? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating to me that we have this sort of, this sort of cultural value. Obviously only a small number of people are digital nomads at any point in their lives but but everyone else in their jobs is sort of aspiring towards more freedom and some of that is really good right because some of these arguments put make it look like i'm sort of against flexible working or family friendly policies or something it gets no. quite dicey but like but we we do just take it as a given that the that there's only advantage in having more control over when when we do what we want to do and um it's just a sort of really obvious fact, although it has been studied in interesting research as well, but like it's just really obvious that almost everything that's worth doing with time depends in some way on sort of coordinating your time with other people. And if there's any kind of social activity, family activity, friend activity that you do in your life uh, on a regular basis, it only happens because someone has decided and you have decided to sacrifice your complete ability to call the shots in favor of saying you know every wednesday at 7 p.m i'll go to this choir or meet my friends at this bar or you know i'll on saturday morning at this time i'll do park run or whatever it is right it's got to it's got to have that sort of seeding of of some control and this connects obviously to a long you know history of things that we've lost for good for 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 ill as well as for good in terms of like the freeing up of our social rhythms and the fact that we're not governed by the pressure to sort of everybody takes the same day off work once a week and all the shops are shut and the only thing that you can do is spend time with your friends and family that that had some advantages because of this kind of coordination and it's funny yeah i think that this you you see it at the sort of the leading edge of that is digital nomads um this notion you know and i'm not saying it's totally wrong for people in the for a you know couple of years in early adulthood this kind of thing might absolutely be part of one's explorations but there's there's lots and lots of accounts from those people after it's been going on a while of the the sort of the, the loneliness of that life because you just go around the world basically on your own or you're making sort of very very superficial encounters with other people who are going around the world uh on their own and it's just not it, you've sort of got too much freedom in that context over your time to allow um friendships and familiarities to to develop and looking back on it i think you know one of the things that happened to me fortuitously but but totally without planning was that I did sort of go to, I wasn't a digital nomad, but I definitely sort of left the UK for the US mm. in that spirit of like, I'm going to do what I want to do and, and, uh, Same. and all the rest of it and sort of accidentally got put down roots there, you know, right. um, in terms of uh, relationship and uh, child and then, and, property ownership it was it was in that order weirdly yeah. <laughs> but anyway the, the all these different things kind of 
I sort of suddenly looked down and realized that I wasn't actually like, you know, <laughs> totally free to relocate wherever I wanted. And I was, I'm glad that I had had that level of freedom taken away from me because all the benefits of those things wouldn't have been able to happen. But, but it's difficult to choose that, right? It's difficult to make a, a conscious decision to say, um, I'd like, I'd like to have less freedom. Mm over my time and I still negotiate it because then you know I left I left the working at the newspaper partly to get more control over my time and now I have sort of it depends how you think about it on the one hand I have like no control of my time because the school run happens when it happens and mm. swimming lessons happen when they happen and and uh we have dinner together instead of me having dinner whenever I want and my wife having dinner whenever she wants and so that's all like I'm held in those things but on the other hand i you know most days at nine o'clock i've got sort of seven hours when i can or six hours when i can sort of do what i want and it's a it's quite hard to use that time well you know it's kind of easy to let it be taken over by the wrong things yeah i mean my most um efficient friends are certainly the ones with small children particularly my female my friends who are mothers very they get things done at astonishing speeds um because they only have you know 45 minutes free time so they're going to use it well but obviously not recommending having a child as a sort of uh, time management technique productivity (laughs) trick (laughs) i mean i've thought about it but anyway i i I was um you you know it's interesting to i obviously really relate to um you know the mindset that you're describing um, but it is funny to watch, you know, whether it's on TikTok, Twitter, whatever, sort of like younger people, Gen Z, uh, particularly younger, young, the youngest of the Gen Z, who don't seem to um, align with this sort of productivity mania that gripped you and gripped me at all. In fact, they're very vocal about rejecting it. And, um, you know, I watched like a TikTok montage yesterday, which was captioned, this gives me hope capitalism will end in our lifetime, lifetime, because it was just all these young women, I think it was just women saying, this is, I don't want to work. I'm not interested in this. Like, I don't dream of this. And it, I, it's such a um, profound shift for such a relatively small <laughs> amount of time. I just, I wondered what your, what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, all sorts of signs are sort of the, the way that people talk about burnout today and the sort of the anti-work movement and, and all the rest of these things. It's hard to know whether my, like, the ways I want to dissent from that are just because I'm a fuddy-duddy compared to those people. So I'm sort of like, I'm at a different stage in this process, this revolutionary process, and I'm going to be sort of... uh you know, insufficiently radical for where society is going. I guess, you know, it's it's really useful and totally liberating and important, psychologically speaking, to see that um, just going a bit faster, just getting a bit more efficient, just optimizing your, your personal productivity one more level is not going to to bring you the thing that it that it promised. Um and that, you know, I think that's part of what you're talking about. I don't spend, I've essentially spent no time on TikTok, I have to confess. No, I have deleted it, but the TikTok gets everywhere. You don't. Oh, sure, right. I don't know. If that, if on Instagram, does. TikTok's on Twitter. You don't need to be on TikTok. Right, okay. on TikTok. I certainly see it on Twitter, um, even if it's mainly sort of, you know, people my age uh, talking about it like a curiosity. But it's, 
there's something really positive in that in that notion that um you know we're not just one more technological advance from finally being able to be in a commanding position over all these demands that in fact there's something really wrong with the demands um and there's a kind of liberation in that even if you can't quit your job right there's a psychological sort of existential liberation um uh at least in in not going along with that logic not thinking that um that the that that getting more productive and efficient is going to save you mm. um at the same time you know i i i don't know where that leaves the idea of work in the broadest sense in like the sense that carl jung used it or something as as a center of of meaning in life and i certainly I certainly resist the notion that you do. I feel like I encounter among some people younger than me that there's sort of no hope of that. It's just a fool's errand to try to expect that your paid work could be a really important center of meaning in your life. And it may be to do with economic changes that it's true for people my age and isn't true for people in their twenties that, that this should be possible. But but it's like actually that sort of stance that says we can't expect work to be um we can't expect paid work to be uh fulfilling seems to me to maybe sometimes risk being a kind of a like perpetuating the problem right because it's a sort of it 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 just it just sort of it's a resignation to the idea that 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 what you do in your job is going to be uh absurd or impossible or just meaningless and exhausting um i don't quite know mm. what i think about that because obviously you know it's just painfully not true for me that my that my work is just something I'd much rather do none of yeah and that's a privileged position to be in and to thing to be able to say but that doesn't mean that it's not part of the mix yeah I don't know yeah no it's it's obviously it's a big it's a big topic and um I I mean in some ways it feels like it's almost like people psychologically priming themselves for the inevitability of AI sort of really massively changing the way the workforce looks but I guess there's also in tandem this thing going on and and you know you obviously acknowledge throughout the book that even being able to like be anxious about how much you can get done is not you know for some people they just have to get everything done you know and they're working really intense jobs that are you know not they don't get to decide how to organize up their time and, and whatever and you obviously um acknowledge that in the book so there's kind of like this weird thing that's going on in the quote unquote discourse among younger people where it's like partly they don't want to they don't really abs- ascribe to the idea of work being meaningful that you d- that you describe but they're also sort of like living you know they've come in of age into an economy where fewer and fewer people sort like people having to work harder than ever it's like a you know it's like a weird I guess that the two things feed into each other but it's like you know sometimes when I read work like yours and I totally ascribe to your philosophy and it and it's really it's been helpful to me and also it's something that I just genuinely generally believe in but also 
it feels especially like in the UK right now that really it's really hard to like opt out of the feeling that you just have to be working more all the time you know like the the pressures of of the financial situation like make it really hard to like take that approach and that's why I think that that sort of internal shift can be so powerful it's it's one of those things that's very easy for me to say because I am also to some extent living that shift in my circumstances uh my external world but like in my experience and talking to other people and and all the rest of it I really do think there is something positive in just the understanding that working harder and harder and faster and faster isn't going to bring you to the place of happiness and peace of mind even if you still have to keep doing it because mm. of the place you find yourself in the socioeconomic structure i read this um great book uh book about zen cohen's by a guy called john tarrant and it's called uh, bring me the rhinoceros and he makes this point at one point unpacking one of these um ancient zen teaching stories that um like it's actually a really modern and sort of technology era kind of it's a really modern thing to even think that uh you have to sort of postpone like the music and the dancing as he puts it you know the joy and happiness of life until the point at which like you're not having to do all sorts of fatiguing appalling stuff just to get by because this would have been completely you know inconceivable to people um to like medieval peasants or something right? Mm. completely afflicted by plague and famine and violence and early mortality just all the time like you you couldn't you it's just obvious then that if you're going to have like festival in your life Mm. or celebration or anything like that, it's got to happen in the midst of all that um stuff and you know maybe historically the 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 time of the baby boomers turning into and the and then generation x which is what i am is going to seem like a very strange um Mm. uh sort of uh whatever the word is i'm looking for interlude um before we get back into that but anyway the point i'm trying to make is it's like there's something really important about seeing that that you don't have to wait until you're not in an impossible and fatiguing and exhausting situation to find enjoyment in life it might still be incredibly hard depending on your specific situation but at least then you won't have this huge psychological barrier that says i've got to wait Mm. until until that's all done and then you can actually like you know then i think there's at least the possibility of finding some sort of real meaning and joy and and it's a psychological barrier that i think is still pretty unique to the uk and the us because obviously when you you know like my mom lives in spain even and you know, the, it's just non, non-stop celebrations and it's not that people are sort of in any particularly fantastic economic situation or anything's right. perfect in their lives. They're just, as you say, they have it inbuilt into their culture and you can see that in many places around the world where people are living in like, you know, different difficult economic st- circumstances, difficult political circumstances, difficult, yeah. you know, environment. No, I think, you know, the, the, it was an idea I slightly tried to trace in the, my previous book, The Antidote, as well. It's like, I think as long as you you have to write carefully about it so that you don't sort of end up accidentally saying that, you know, it's good that people have to live in poverty or with 
various sort of threats to their lives. But I think there's a direct connection between those kinds of insecurities and sort of the willingness to take find the pleasure and the joy now because it's precisely because you can't believe that in 10 years time like or five years time or or next week you know yeah. you can't believe that uh that it's impossible to believe that like everything's going to all be fine then and then you'll be able to enjoy yourself mm-hmm. that's exactly why you sort of might as well enjoy yourself now which is something that you know i think we can all go through in our lives as an understanding but it's easy it's actually easier in worse circumstances sometimes to do that. absolutely um just conscious of time so i just yeah. wanted to ask you i don't know if you got a chance i think i sent you in the original email <clears throat> a question about some books yeah did you have a chance to think about that <laughs> did you I did. Add yes, yes. I, I, I thought about it and i don't know that i'm uh, I sort of went round in circles, but I've got I've got some answers. Okay, because I I just was interested. I mean, I could ask you many many questions more about this book because it's so broad and it covers so much. But um, I I was interested. You know, you have obviously have like a very broad reading practice. The the book, even your references, like span from sort of like new age, you know, slightly like wacko ideas to like very rigorously researched studies and whatever. Um, and I was just wondering if you could share maybe a book that recently made an impact on you and a book that you would recommend to everyone and why. I will try. Yes, these are both on the sort of, well, no, they're not really new agey, really. They're they're quite sober in their spirituality, but they are spirituality. They would be in the spiritual bit of the bookshop, probably. Yeah. Um, so the one that um, I'm thinking about a lot recently is... Um, actually got it here it's called being time a practitioner's guide to dogen's shobogenzo uji by shinshu roberts so it's a it's a mouthful but it's a it's a long commentary by a contemporary zen i think she's a i think she's a zen priest i think that's what you call her called uh, shinshu roberts um he's an american about a text um written by a one of the founders of uh, the Zen tradition, uh, Dogen. Uh, um, anyway, this is kind of quite a scholarly thing. It's quite sort of for people who are kind of really into this stuff. But what the sh- the headline that I found so amazing about this book is that in my book, in four thousand weeks, I sort of i i was i was sort of um, on the trail of this notion that I eventually kind of just about got to that it makes more sense to think of time as something that we are rather than something that we have. And that there's something very sort of important and liberating about the notion that, that we are time. And the closest that I got to sort of finding sources for this was in the work of the aforementioned um, impenetrable writer and Nazi uh, Martin Heidegger, um, (laughs) whose magnum opus is called being and time and that maybe you could say makes the argument that being and time are the same thing and it was always a bit I had to sort of figure out how to incorporate his references to him in the book given that given his sort of abhorrent politics and all the rest of this and then it's basically here in the work of Dogen from the 
uh, whatever century. But anyway, not a Nazi and had basically got there already with yeah. this notion that um, that being and time are somehow the same thing. And that there's some it, this is a way of talking that can really help you. If you catch it, if it if it happens to resonate for you, it, it can really help you on that sort of shift of perspective into something into a very different way of of relating to time. And anyway, Shinshu Roberts really sort of takes these very condensed, potentially very opaque little uh, paragraphs from Dogen, and then gives you like a sort of commentary that puts it into a language that makes sense and that I can understand and gives me examples and things. So I've really loved that book. Thank you. For, that's a very solid recommendation. And obviously you've looked a lot into that uh, topic, so I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> the book that I would recommend sorry, anybody, yeah. everyone read, um, is, call, is, a, is called uh, Death, the End of Self-Improvement. Uh, and it is by a spiritual teacher called Joan Tollefson, uh, also American. Um, and I did write about this actually in one of my sort of last columns towards the end for the of the Guardian column. But it's a it's a sort of combination, slightly new agey spiritual text combined with a sort of uh, account of the author's. First of all, sort of her account of of her mother's death and being with her mother through that, and then of her own encounters with mortality uh, and her sort of uh, her own cancer treatments and her sort of like conf- confrontation with with mortality. Uh, she's very much alive, Joan Tollison, but she has uh, really been through some very sort of intense uh, uh, treatments. Um, and painful things to to get that way and what's so amazing about this book is it makes you realize that so many sort of spirituality books say that what they're about is kind of falling back into reality seeing the world as it really is uh, letting go of sort of um, grasping after how you want the world to be and just sort of plunging into the reality of the world uh but then actually the what they do is they plunge you into the reality of like you know being on a gorgeous mountainside or mm. um or sort of floating through the sky or looking at and the covers of these kinds of books always have like a little pond with a pebble on it or a sort of you know the sun through the clouds and a lotus flower on a on a on water or something and it and it really made me realize because she does this so well she's like it's unsparing it's like a book that merges this spiritual idea about wanting to sort of see and feel everything that is there with kind of accounts of her treatments and stuff that really make you want to flinch because they are sort of painful and mm. kind of intimate and I and sort of gross right they involve like colostomy bags and all sorts of things that are just like you do not get in spiritual books most of the time and the effect of going on this journey and getting over your sort of like oh I'm not sure I want to read about what that was like kind of kind of reaction is actually much more powerful and interesting and sort of flicks a switch in you much more much more definitively than these books that sort of pay lip service to that but on some level you know they have just talked you through like the 
the upsides of this. So I'm probably making this sound really grim and unappetizing. Not at all. And it's Joe Thompson's great it's skill that it is very funny neat. and not unappetizing and totally charming and sort of transporting at the same time. So I would highly recommend that book. It's called Death, the End of Self-Improvement. Death, the End of Self-Improvement. I really, really, again, I really appreciate you no pun intended, um, making the time to do this. Um, and yeah, congratulations. It's honestly, it, it, this book was one of the like most impactful books I read last year and um, I recommend it a lot. So it's been a real um, pleasure to, to speak to you about it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.